We're going to read in 1 Peter chapter 2 and 3, and I'm going to bring a message entitled, When Spiritual Authority Lets You Down. How do you respond? How do you respond when your husband fails you, or your mother disappoints you, or your father hurts you? How do you respond when your pastor uh, makes a mistake, even does something wrong? How do you respond when the government seems to be unfair? How do you respond when spiritual authority does you wrong? Well, we're going to find out uh, in this passage of Scripture. So follow with me, please, as we begin in chapter 2 and verse 18. And uh, uh, listen very carefully, especially about what this says about the Lord Jesus Christ. Servants, be subject to your masters with all fear, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the froward. For this is thankworthy if a man... For conscience toward God endure grief, suffering wrongfully. For what glory is it if when ye be buffeted for your faults, ye shall take it patiently? But if when you do well and suffer for it, you take it patiently, this is acceptable with God. For even hereunto were you called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that ye should follow his steps, who did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth, who, when he was reviled, reviled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not, but committed himself to him that judgeth righteously, who his own self bare our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, being dead to sin, should live unto righteousness, by whose stripes ye were healed. For ye were a sheep going astray, but are now returned unto the shepherd and bishop of your souls. Our Father, I pray you would bless the reading of your word. I pray you would preach, uh, bless the preaching of it and bless the hearing of it. I pray this message would be God-glorifying and Christ-centered and cross-focused, that it might be spirit-empowered, above all, that it might be life-changing. I pray you would minister to the hearts of your people, minister to this church, minister to this pastor, and may the strength uh, of the ministry uh, grow because of the truths we learn here tonight. And we'll thank you for it in Christ's name. Amen. It was some years ago during that famous uh, uh, presidential election, and you should know about this, the year of the hanging Chad. You remember that? Well, I, I, was, uh, I was very uh, disappointed in that election because it looked like the wrong person was getting elected. Um, it looked like uh, Bush uh, was about to get gored and Gore was not getting bushed. So we had just had, we had just had a, 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 you know, a, a period of time of disappointment. And I was so anxious and so I was getting so worried. I mean, literally, I went into a depression. I told my wife, I'm going to go into my study and I'm going to, to um, I'm going to get into the Word of God and try to get through this because I, I just, this is ridiculous. So I opened my Bible to Psalm 119, and my eye fell across the page of Psalm 118. It's better to trust in the Lord than to put confidence in man, right? 
It's better to trust in the Lord than to put confidence in princes, which means government. And I realized what I was doing. The reason I was getting depressed is because my confidence was in man. I, I didn't realize how subtle this shift in my, in my spirit had taken place. I don't know when it started or how it came about. But uh, as I sat there that day, I, this question came to mind. And I, I think it was of the Lord. And the question was this. Is there any scripture that teaches or commands or exhorts or directs a Christian to trust a human being? Think about that. Is there any scripture that teaches you to trust a human being? And I pondered. That's a deeper level than thinking, by the way. I pondered, and I pondered, and I pondered. Now, only thing I could come up with was uh, Psalm, I'm sorry, Proverbs 31, where it says, The heart of her husband does safely trust in her. But that's not a command. That's a description of a man's confidence in his wife to manage the household. But it's not a directive. It's not an exhortation. It's not a command. So then the next question was, uh, are there any scriptures that teach you should not trust in man? Well, I'd like you to turn to Jeremiah 17 and keep your finger there because we're coming back to 1 Peter. But look at Jeremiah. For, you know this passage of scripture, I'm sure, but you might be shocked at some of the words. Uh, in chapter 17, let's see. Let's start in verse 5. Jeremiah 17, verse 5. Thus saith the Lord, Cursed be the man that trusteth in man. Whoa! <laughs> if we stopped right there, we'd just been shocked. Cursed is the man that trusteth in man. Now, let's read on. And maketh flesh his arm, and whose heart departeth from the Lord. For he shall be like the heath in the desert, and shall... Uh, shall not see when good cometh, but shall inhabit the parched places in the, in the wilderness, and a salt land, and not inhabited. Blessed is the man that trusteth in the Lord, and whose hope the Lord is. For he shall be as a tree planted by the waters, and that spreadeth out her roots by the river, and shall not see when heat cometh, but her leaf shall be green, and shall not be careful in the year of drought, neither shall cease from yielding fruit. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? So why should why does the Bible say that a man is cursed who puts his trust in man? Because the heart is deceitful. Young people, beware of any person who says to you, trust me. Beware of anyone who says to you, trust your heart. That's about the dumbest thing a person can say. The fact of the matter is, you should not trust me. And you know why? Because my heart is deceitful. Deceitful above all things. Wicked and desperately wicked. And I can't know it. You can't know it. And psychology can't know it. Psychology claims to know the heart. The whole basis of psychology is that they claim to, ask, to answer why questions. 
I teach my students, uh, don't ask why questions, because the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked, and who can know it? So when people say, why did I do this? I don't know. Why, do, why does a person have this disorder? I don't know. That's not where I go as a biblical counselor. I don't try to answer questions that don't have an answer. I try to answer questions that do have an answer. They're not why questions. They're what questions. What does the Bible say? What is the commandment you're to follow? What is your responsibility? What, what, what? What questions have answers? Why questions don't? Why? Because the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. And if you were able to stop every murderer in Chicago in mid-motion as they lifted their gun to kill someone and just before they pulled the trigger, you were able to say, why are you doing that? Do you really think they know why? And by the way, do you really think the person that hurt you so deeply in the past, especially that spiritual authority, you really think they know why they did what they did to you? The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? They don't know, and you don't know. And so the Bible says, Cursed is a man that trusteth in man and makes the flesh his strength. And so as you go through the Bible, you'll find out that God says, Don't trust your reasoning. Trust in the Lord with all thine heart. Lean not unto thine own understanding. Don't trust your flesh. Have no confidence in the flesh. Don't trust the military. Some trust in horses. Some trust in chariots. But we will remember the name of the Lord our God. Don't trust in government. Don't trust in man. And I want you to turn to the book of Micah for the final shocker because this is really going to make your night. <laughs> and by the way, while we go through this, can I make this caveat emptor, as they say, the Bible does not advocate distrust. The Bible does not advocate mistrust. But the Bible makes a strong case as to the source of trust. What are you trusting in? And we'll see that in a moment. Now, Micah, let's see. Uh, what, what verse am I looking for? Micah chapter 5. Uh, let's look at, uh, uh, starting in, where are we? Uh, is it, wait, Micah chapter 7. Verse 5. Trust ye not in a friend, but ye not, uh, uh, but ye not, confidence, put ye not confidence in a guide, keep the doors of thy mouth from her that lieth in thy bosom for the son dishonoreth the father the daughter riseth up against her mother the daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law a man's enemies are the men of his own house so don't trust a friend don't trust your family now, I ask the question again is there any Scripture in the Bible that commands us to trust another human being? No. At least not to my knowledge. Is there any scripture that commands to not trust a human being? Yes. So then I had to ask myself, okay, 
why in all of marriage counseling and all training of marriage counselors is one of the number one issues restoring trust in your mate? What do you say as a counselor to the wife whose husband has had eight affairs? As I, as I uh, face that situation. After the first time, well, we got to restore trust, okay? After the second time, we got to restore trust. After the third time, well, let's restore trust again. After the fourth time, well, let's restore trust again. After the fifth time, well, let's restore trust again. How many times do you do this? And are we making a mistake? And I'm asking myself this question. I'm a marriage counselor. Am I making a mistake by trying to restore trust in an untrustworthy human being who does not know his heart and neither can you? You see the folly of this? Now, don't despair because we're going to get to a solution because there is a solution here. And the solution is, where is your trust focused? Let me sum it up this way. The Bible does not teach trust in a man. The Bible teaches trust through a man to God. To work back through that man, even though he be evil, to you. And so what does the Bible say in 1 Peter 2 about Christ? He committed himself unto him that judgeth righteously. Right? Now let's go to John chapter 19 and see Christ in probably uh, the worst position he could be in. One of submission, but not trust of a spiritual authority. Remember this story? In John chapter 19, when uh, Jesus was before Pilate, and Pilate was getting upset that uh, Jesus wouldn't say anything. He didn't quite know what to make of it. And so uh, the Bible says about Jesus that uh, in verse 10, then saith Pilate unto him, and you have to use your imagination when you read this because here's this pompous, arrogant Roman official who's used to everyone jumping when he barks, saying to Jesus, uh, Speakest thou not unto me? <laughs> Don't you know who I am? That's what he's saying. Speakest thou not unto me? Jesus has not spoken since the garden. Speakest thou not unto me? Knowest thou not that I have power to crucify thee and have power to release thee? Now this is Pilate, a spiritual authority, a government official, a power ordained by God, according to Paul, who is standing before the citizen Jesus and saying to him, why don't you talk to me? Because I have power over your life. But notice what Jesus said. Jesus answered, Thou couldst have no power at all against me, except it were given thee from above. All right, now let me ask a question then. When a spiritual authority lets you down, where's your trust? Is it in a man? Or is it through the man to God to work back through that man to you? This is the question. Where is our trust focused? When a spiritual authority lets us down, 
Jesus is standing before Pilate, and uh, Jesus, uh, Pilate is saying, I have all power. And Jesus says, no, the power is not yours. The power doesn't originate with you. The power comes from God. And so all the power uh, is where I'm going to focus my trust. I'm not going to trust in you, Pilate. I'm going to trust through you to God to work back through you to me to do whatever he wants. I said that to a wife one time, and uh, she was struggling with submitting to her husband. And she said, and this is a problem. She said, but I don't want to go to the cross. One of the most honest statements in counseling I've ever heard. But I don't want to go to the cross. And nobody wants to go to the cross. The issue then is, where is your trust focus? Because I will tell you, when, when your trust in God is most tested, is when spiritual authority lets you down. They do something that is hurtful to you. They do something perhaps that you would gauge as sinful or weak or uh, make a mistake, or, but the result is you're hurt. Now, how do you respond? If you go to chapter 3 of 1 Peter, we see that uh, God carries this thought a little further. Uh, he takes it into the realm of human relationship. And by the way, 1 Peter is a book that is written by Peter, uh, after Rome burned under Nero. Historians tell us that uh, Nero had this uh, obsessive compulsive uh, building disorder. He had to build things. He loved to build buildings. And, uh, but the problem was Rome was landlocked and Rome was full. According to Josephus, a historian, uh, he sent his lieutenants out into the streets of Rome to torch the city because he had to burn buildings down in order to satiate his obsessive building disorder. Well, the citizenry of Rome rose up in protest against him. He knew he had gone too far, and he looked for a scapegoat. And you know who he chose? Christians. Because Christians said that the world is going to end and, a, and, a, and fervent, melt in fervent heat. And he blamed Christians for, for being uh, uh, ob, uh, obscene and having orgies because they greet one another with a holy kiss. He blamed Christians for uh, being disobedient to Caesar. He blamed Christians for hurting the economy as Paul did in Ephesus when he uh, hurt the, the, the sale of, of uh, the idols of Diana. And so across the known world, a wave of persecution swept and the government targeted Christians in order to shift the blame from Nero to the Christians. And so 1 Peter is written, especially to the area of Bithynia, where a lot of this persecution was taking place because Peter wanted them to know, how do you respond when the government is unfair? Chapter 2. How do you respond when your master is unfair? Chapter 2. How do you respond when your husband is unfair? Chapter 3. How do you respond when your pastor is unfair? Chapter 5. The whole book of 1 Peter, uh, it focuses on how do you respond when spiritual authority is unfair. And the ultimate example that's given, of course, is the Lord Jesus Christ himself. But you notice the first word of chapter 3. 
see, we have just read about Christ in chapter 2. And we read about, uh, we'll come back to it and look at it a little more in depth if we have time. But you see that Jesus is motivated by something very precious. Uh, verse 24, who his own self bear our sins in his own body on the tree, that, so that, in order that, we, being dead to sin, should live under righteousness by whose stripes you were healed. For ye were a sheep going astray, but are now returned under the shepherd and bishop of your souls. So what we end with, the thought we end with in chapter 2, is that Jesus suffered for a, a specific reason, and that was to minister. To minister. That's what verse 24 and 25 say. And Jesus himself said, The Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister. Chapter 3, verse 1. Likewise, ye wives. Now, chapter 3 is one of the most despised uh, portions of Scripture uh, by liberals and uh, feminists and even many Christian women. It has been abused and misapplied uh, like a bludgeon uh, so often by so many that it has become uh, despicable in the eyes of many Christian women. But if you look at it in the context of Christ saying to the Christian wife, uh, now this is how you respond to an unfair husband, we get a microcosmic picture of how any subordinate should respond to a spiritual authority. This is not just about wives in chapter 3. Now, it's addressing wives, uh, but it, it, is a, it is a, uh, has a broader application than just marriage. The principles here that we're about to read apply to any relationship of a spiritual authority and a subordinate. So let's read them uh, uh, based on the word likewise. You cannot understand chapter 3 unless you understand chapter 2. You cannot understand verse 7 unless you ever understand everything that preceded it. What's the first word of verse 7? Likewise, ye husbands. Now what's the word likewise pointing to? What you have just read. So we have just read about this willingness to suffer, even though he did no sin, this example to us, the model that he, he has given us, a mandate he has given us to suffer as he suffered at the, at the hand of unfair spiritual authority, and why? Likewise, verse 1, ye wives, be in subjection to your own husbands, that, so that, in order that. If any obey not the word, they also may without the word, watch it now, be one by the conversation of the wives. Be one. Now some people say, well, that's just talking about soul winning, right? No, it's not talking just about soul winning. I think that's included in, in that. I think evangelism is included in that. But the word one means influenced. In other words, why is the wife to have the submissive spirit of Christ to have the same goals of Christ, to minister 
to the spiritual authority. You with me? Everybody understand so far? All right, now, he comes to the wives and he says, Likewise, you wives, be in subjection to your own husband. Why? So he'll treat you better? Why? So you'll be happy? Why? Uh, to have a good husband? One wife came to me uh, when I was pastoring, and I, I had encouraged her to be submit, uh, submissive to her husband. And she said, this submission stuff is not working. And I said, what do you mean? She said, well, I've been doing it for two weeks, now, and he's not treating me any better than he ever did. I said, so you want to submit to him so he will treat you better? Well, she said, well, yeah. <laughs> what else is there? There is something else. And the purpose of submitting to a spiritual authority is not so he'll treat you better. The purpose is to win him. To influence him. To minister to him. To bring good into his life. And how many people actually think about our government or our city government or our boss or our husband or our parents of submitting to them so that we can minister to them. No, we react to them because they don't minister to us. That's exactly the problem Jesus had with the disciples. When they were having that argument, you remember, and they were saying who should be greatest, and finally Jesus said the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto but to minister. Now let me just stop right there and ask you a question. Did you join this church to be ministered unto or to minister? Did you get married to be ministered unto or to minister? Do you give any thought to ministering to your boss or just taking advantage of your boss to get what you want? Do you actually believe that the government can be ministered unto instead of just using them to minister to you? I want to tell you the thing that I've seen that has changed marriages is when the husband and the wife both get a vision for ministry. When a husband comes in the marriage to minister to his wife and the wife comes in the marriage to minister to her husband, they're going to meet in the middle and their arms are going to be around each other. But if the husband comes into the marriage to be ministered unto, and the wife comes into the marriage to be ministered unto, they're going to be as far apart as you can imagine, waiting on the other one to act first. And how's that working for you? That doesn't work so good. So we have to ask ourselves, okay, uh, God is saying here, this is the reason that you should submit to your spiritual authority to win them. Now that means influence. And by the way, the number one complaint that followers have about leaders is their character. Why should I submit unto him when he's so wicked and sinful and dishonest and hurtful? Brother Benny, if you knew my husband, like I know my husband, you would not tell me to submit to him. If you knew my boss, like I know my boss, you would not tell me to submit unto him. If you knew uh, my government, like I know, and on and on. 
But what does verse 1 say? Look at it carefully. Likewise, you wives, be in subjection to your own husbands, that if any obey not the word. Let me tell you what that means. The character of the husband is taken off the table. This is the wife's main point of argument. Why should I submit to that? This is the teenager's main argument. Why should I submit to my father or my mother because I saw them do something wrong? Why should I submit to my pastor if my pastor did something wrong? You don't understand, Brother Benny. I don't need to submit to my spiritual authority because my spiritual authority obeys not the word. No, you don't understand. That's exactly the spiritual authority you need to submit to. That's what the Bible's saying. And why do you submit to them? That they may be one. In other words, this is a ministry of influence. And I wonder how many Christians over the years have abandoned a ministry of influence out of resentment and hatred and bitterness because my spiritual authority mistreated me. I'll tell you what, I'm glad Jesus didn't have that attitude on the cross. Because if Jesus had had that attitude on the cross, you and I wouldn't be in this room today. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do, was his prayer. So now what God is saying is that the subordinate should submit to the authority with the primary motivation of ministry, not to be ministered unto. That's what Jesus demonstrated in chapter 2, and that's why the word likewise is the first word of chapter 3, because the thought is being continued from the master-servant relationship, from the Christ and government relationship, to the husband and wife relationship, but it all fits under spiritual authority. Now let's read on in chapter 2, uh, chapter 3, verse 2. While they behold your chaste conversation coupled with fear. And then Peter addresses the wrong way to influence your husband. Whose adorning, let it not be that outward adorning of plating the hair and of wearing of gold or a putting on of apparel. I was in a church, um, I was in a church in South Georgia when I was in college, and it was one of those wind-sucking preachers, you know, uh, that suck wind every, every other sentence, and he was preaching on this verse, and he was really getting into it, and he, and he was saying, and it says uh, right here uh, that you ought not to be doing your hair up fancy, uh. And it says right here that y'all ought to be wearing them fancy jewelry things. But he didn't say, and it says right here, y'all ought to be wearing them dirty clothes. <laughs> what is this verse saying? Does it say, is this verse saying that women should never do their hair? Is this verse saying that women should never wear jewelry? No more than it's saying that women should never wear clothes. What this verse is saying is, that's not how you win your husband. 
See, that's the world's idea. The world teaches young girls that if you want to influence a man, you got to look pretty. You got to dress stylish. You got to have the latest hairdo, the best makeup, and the best jewelry. Now, you'll really attract them. And the world says to the wife, if you want to influence your husband, uh, why well, you've got to look a certain way. God says that's not how you do it. So how do you do it? Verse 4, But let it be the hidden man of the heart, and that which is not corruptible, even the ornament, the jewelry, the clothes, the hairdo, of a meek and quiet spirit, which is in the sight of God of great price. Now here's the question to the follower. How do you ever get to that place? How do you get to the place where you have a Christ-like spirit of ministry and you are motivated with, Christ, motivated with Christ's motivation of winning someone even though they obey not the word? And how do you get to the place where you uh, are willing to have this meek and quiet spirit in the presence of an unfair spiritual authority in order to win them? How do you get to that place? It's not logical. It's not even, according to some, uh, practical. And it's certainly not acceptable by the world because the world uh, uh, would say, no, this is the way you do it. You're, doing, you're thinking wrongly. How do you get to this place? Verse 5. For after this manner in the old time, the holy women also who trusted in God adorned themselves being in subjection under their own husbands. Take two phrases in chapter, uh, verse 5, put them end to end. Trusted in God, in subjection to their husband. Not trusted in their husband in subjection to God. Are you thinking? How did the holy women of old, like Sarah, who's used as an example, how did they ever submit to a husband that said, go in the tent with that prince? How do you get to that place? How do you, sub how do you submit yourself to spiritual authority thought that is so off the wall, wacko, sicko, unbiblical, and telling you to do something like that? Well, I know how Sarah did it. She trusted in God. Her subjection to her husband was a reflection of her trust in God. And so let me just put, put this to you as the point of this passage. Jesus committed himself unto him that judgeth righteously. Did he trust in Pilate? No. Did he trust through Pilate to God? Yes. And when did he display his trust in God? By submitting to an unfair spiritual authority. Are y'all thinking? I mean, come now and let us reason together, saith the Lord. I know that this is not taught, this is not preached, this is not written about. Because everything that you're going to read about is on a mano a mano level. Man to man. Human to human. It's all about how do we fall in love again? How do we learn to trust all over again? How do we... Trust this person, and why should why you should never trust this person? Spiritual authority will let you down. 
Every husband in this room knows that's a fact. Every parent in this room knows that's a fact. Every child who was brought up by parents knows that's a fact. Every church member knows that's a fact. Every citizen knows that's a fact. Every worker in the grocery store, any other factory, any other job knows that's a fact. Spiritual authority will let you down. How do you respond? The holy women of old who trusted in God were in subjection to their own husbands. Own, by the way, O-W-N. It's much easier sometimes to be in subjection to someone else's husband. Like the, the, the wife of the policeman. You can be in subjection to her husband very easily. But it's not so easy sometimes to be in subjection to your own husband unless you trust in God. So the issue, my friend, is not uh, do you trust your spiritual authority? And the issue is not can you trust your spiritual authority? Because I'm going to tell you flatly, you can't. The issue, do you trust God enough to submit to unfair spiritual authority in order to minister to them? Because God has a plan. That's exactly what Jesus did. Now, our problem is like the, is like the, the wife who came to counseling some time back. Uh, we were doing our counseling at a, a place in Greenville, South Carolina called the Sheep Keepers Inn. And it was called the Sheep Keepers Inn because uh, the owners had a flock of sheep. It was very pastoral setting and very beautiful. And they're friends of mine. In fact, I went to school with them at Bob Jones. And so we had, uh, we had bring two couples a week to come into this inn. And, and uh, we had the whole inn and, and use it as a counseling center uh, for a period of time. Well, one morning, uh, uh, Sharon, the owner, came in and said, uh, we're going to have a traveling uh, sheep shearer to come to our our." sheep ranch and if you'd like to watch if you've never seen sheep shearing and you would like to see uh, a, an expert do it he'll be here at such and such a time so I took both uh, couples out to the pen where there were about 30 sheep and this mountain man with the beard down to his waist and a mountain of a man with bib overalls and two in the back and he two he comes in, and we all gather around the fence, and we're going to watch sheep shearing. And I want to tell you the most fascinating thing I've ever seen. You know, the Bible says, uh, as a sheep before a shearer is dumb, so he openeth not his mouth. If you have never seen sheep shearing, you don't know what that means. Here's these 30 sheep, and they're scared. They know something's up. They, they're not quite sure what. And they're going, ah, 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 and they're pushing against each other. They're milling around, and they're, and they're confused, and they're frightened. He reaches over. He grabs one sheep by the nap of the neck with that big hand of his, pulls that sheep up to his hip instantly. They stop wiggling and they stop. Ah. 
They know the master has them by the nap of the neck. And he pulls them up to his thigh and he takes that thing and he, sh he shears them. And they never wiggle and they never make a sound. Until one sheep, the rebel of the lot, he should have had black wool. He reaches out and he grabs that sheep and he pulls it up. And that sheep is kicking, shaking his head. And he jerks him again. Now, the wife next to me taps me on the shoulder. She said, that's me. <laughs> that's me. It's not an easy thing. Unless we learn to trust God. That's what Jesus did. And that's why Jesus could look right in the eye of Pilate and he'd say, you know what? You would have no power at all except that we're given you from above. When I was a little boy, I came out of our barn on our farm one night, on a moonlit night, after having been, uh, I don't know how else to say it, except brutalized with a two-by-two -two board with very sharp edges, lacerated my back and my buttocks and my legs, and the blood was pooling in my shoes. And I come out in the barnyard, and I look up to uh, God in a very uh, starlit, clear night, and I breathe this question. I hissed it through my uh, bared teeth. God, if you're such a God of love, why are you letting this happen to a little boy? And God didn't answer that question for 20 years. Now I'm a young pastor. I'm 28 years old. I'm sitting in a study. And across from me is a boy who was abused, who was being abused by his father. Now, I don't remember uh, memorizing this verse. In fact, I didn't have any recollection of even reading it in recent memory. But it sprang into my mind as if it were a trumpet call from God. Blessed be the God of all comfort, who comforteth us in all our tribulation, that we may be able to comfort them which are in any trouble by the comfort wherewith we ourselves are comforted of God. There's your answer, Jim. God uh, allowed me to suffer, perhaps orchestrated my suffering for an express reason. To comfort me. Why? So I could be happy. So I could feel good about myself. So I could have high self-esteem. Or so that I could be equipped to now turn around and comfort others with the same comfort he comforted me with. But I want to tell you, that training and that schooling could not happen unless I had had an unfair spiritual authority. You have had an unfair spiritual authority in your life. Why did God put that unfair spiritual authority in your life? 
Why didn't you have a spiritual authority like everybody else has a spiritual authority? Why didn't you have a father like everybody else? Why didn't you have a mother like everybody else? Why didn't you have a, a boss like everybody else or a government official or a pastor like everybody else? Why did God put you under that spiritual authority? And I believe he has a, he has a, a, a right to do so and he has a reason for doing so. And in fact, unless we kick against the pricks and until we begin to trust God, we will never experience the full reason for God's wisdom in putting us under unfair spiritual authority. So do you trust God? That's the question. Do you trust God? See, Jesus committed himself unto him that judges righteously. He gave us a mandate for suffering. He gave us a model for suffering. And he gave us a motive for suffering. And then he says, likewise, uh, all of you be subject unto your spiritual authority so that if your spiritual authority obeys not the word, uh, he may be one without the word by your, the conversation that he sees in you. Because as you trust God, you communicate to him a ministry unlike anything he's ever heard or seen. So we're going to be, we're going to be mistreated. Uh, we're going to be uh, maligned. We're going to be hurt. Not always purposely, but it may be by somebody obey, who obeys not the word. The issue is not, is this spiritual authority worthy of my trust? That's not the issue. That has been taken off the table. Not only is this spiritual authority uh, has, it, uh, has such a desperately wicked heart that he cannot know it. That's one reason that you should not expect that your spiritual authority is going to treat you fairly. But not only that, he obeys not the word. A person who obeys not the, wor uh, who obeys not the word is not going to treat you fairly. So are you going to react to the spiritual authority's unfairness or are you going to respond to your faith in God who doeth all things well to work through you to that person's life to win them? We are so selfish, so self-centered. We think it's okay for Jesus to die on the cross for our sins, but it's radically unfair for us to ever have to bear a cross because of someone else's sinfulness. Let me remind you, Jesus said, the servant is not greater than his Lord. If they have persecuted you, uh, persecuted me, they will also persecute you. Listen to what Jesus said. The servant is not greater than his Lord. I'm afraid many of us as Christians think we are. Pardon me for being blunt. But the fact of the matter is, you cannot go to the cross and look up in the face of your suffering Savior. And you cannot look at your Savior on the cross and say, thank you, Jesus, for suffering because of my sinfulness. Thank you, Jesus, for dying for my sins. Thank you, Jesus, for ministering to me in my sinfulness and wickedness. And then turn from the cross and whisper under your breath, but don't ever ask me to do the same for someone else. 
That's not fair. That's what we say, right? That's not fair. What is fair? And since was since when was fairness ever a standard for cross-centered Christianity? So, my friend, I hope I've challenged your thinking tonight. Uh, you can disagree with me. When you get to heaven, you'll find out you were wrong. <laughs> but I, 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 my heart goes out to you and uh, to all believers and to all married partners who have an unbiblical concept of trust when God's not even in the equation. Our trust is not in a man our trust is through a man to God to work back through that man to us. And in Christ's case, that meant a cross. Are we willing to carry that cross? When we become willing, I want to tell you, uh, it will bring a peace and a joy that passes understanding. Father, I pray you bless the truth of your word tonight. First and foremost, above all else, we thank you for our precious Lord Jesus Christ who came to this earth to suffer and die for our sin. And we thank you for the model that he gave us that as he suffered, uh, we should follow in his steps. And we thank you for the motive that he displayed to us that we, he might return us to the shepherd and bishop of our soul. And we thank you for a trustworthy God who in spite of the unfairness of our spiritual authority can be trusted. And through that trust, as our, as our spiritual authority sees our trust in our God be ministered unto. So help us, Lord, to, as Jesus did, commit ourselves to him that judgeth righteously, we pray in Christ's name. If you would like to know more about the Lord Jesus Christ, you may contact us at the church website, gospelbaptistchurch.com, or you can go to Facebook and type in Gospel Baptist Church Bonita Springs, Florida. Also, you could call the church office at 239-947-1285. Thank you, and God bless.